Have you ever tried to pass something off for something that's not? Like, have you ever tried to pass off something that is fake for something that is real? Hopefully, if you answer yes to that question in any capacity, it's not in the case of money. But for example, our world has a lot of fake things that people try to say is the real thing. Like, there are devoted people, devoted people, they call themselves sneakerheads, who can spot fake versus real sneakers from a mile away. Like, if I throw up this picture, a lot of us just see four different pairs of shoes, or four different shoes. But for a devoted sneakerhead, they easily could tell what shoes are fake and what ones are real. Here's my next question. Does anybody know what kind of shoes these are even? Yeezys. Come on, man. Yeah. See? I almost threw up some Jordans on there, and I was like, I don't have Jordans to wear. I wish I did, but I'm not going to wear Jordans. So Yeezys. So we can see what shoes are fake and what ones are real. Or, or what about this one? This next picture. Um, what doctors are real and what ones are fake? This is kind of like a half a trick question, right? Right, because this is a group of, of neurosurgeons that is part of the Metro team, the University of Michigan, the greatest university in the world. Their team of neurosurgeons. Meredith Gray, that's like a 50% real, 50% not real. We don't really know, kind of, right? I've actually learned a lot about my own personal health from watching Grey's Anatomy, never missed an episode. And then this last guy, anybody know who that guy is? His name is Dr. Death. I'm not kidding you. There's a whole entire series about him right now. And here's what's interesting. Dr. Death is a guy who went to school to be a doctor, but he didn't actually become board certified. But yet, he somehow got his own neuro practice. He's actually one of the most well-known surgical serial killers. Did you know that? But is he a real doctor? If you ask him, he'd pass himself off as it. But his associates, his other doctors who actually did practice medicine had a lot of doubts about him. What about this one? Ray-Bans. It's really hard to tell. And Josh and I, as we are sitting talking about this message, what, what Ray-Bans are real and what ones are not real? You guys probably can't really see it that well. But on the top one, it says, made in Italy. Did you know Ray-Bans are made in Italy? So therefore, these ones that do not say made in Italy are the fake ones. But everything about them looks almost identical. What about our prayer life? This one maybe is a little bit more harder for us to deal with. What about our prayer life? Have we tried to pass off an imitated prayer life for the real one? If I were to throw random pictures up here and, and just throw random people's pictures up there and ask you what one of these pictures has a real prayer life, a devoted prayer life, and what one of these people have an imitation prayer life or one that is very surface level, not deep and intimate at all, my guess is a lot of us probably would not be able to differentiate between the two. Is that a fair assessment? You see, how many times have we tried to pass off a devotional life to God rather than a devoted life for him? 
Our devotional life is, is, is this. It, we, we check off the box. I did my YouVersion Bible app for 10 minutes this morning. Check. I showed up for church. Check. I, I did my serving time. Check. I prayed for my food. Check. See, devotional life is, is pressure-free. It's simple. It's easy. But I don't think that's what we've ever been called to. A devoted prayer life, though, a devoted prayer life is those moments where you seek to have his presence in every single opportunity of your day. It's, it's, the, it's the opportunity to give freely and openly and generously. It's willing to jump in and serve when God leads you to. Your prayer life is not just moments in your day, but rather a movement in your heart throughout your whole entire day. A devoted prayer life is an intentional walk. If I'm being very honest, I don't know if a devoted prayer life is the most comfortable thing in the world either. And it leads me to my question this morning. Are we striving for a devotional prayer life or devoted prayer life? And I think there's a big difference between these two. Are we striving for a devotional prayer life or a devoted prayer life? You see, the gospel, the, the whole entire book of the Bible actually highlights the difference between these two. The Bible talks quite a bit about prayer. The gospels, Jesus himself talks a lot about prayer, but we also see Jesus actively participate in prayer oftentimes. And here's what's so intriguing to me is that when we talk about prayer, oftentimes the first thing that we go to is we pray that God would provide us for this or we pray that God would bless us through our bodies or we pray for whatever it might be. But I think that we have to understand that repentance is also a vital part of prayer. And I, I think there's no better way to start off this message this morning and this series this morning then I got to get some stuff off my chest. And I, I remember sitting with the other lead pastors Tuesday morning, we were talking about this, and the reality is this, is that I want, I want to publicly and personally repent for having a possible low view of prayer. And whether it be intentionally or unintentionally teaching, some of these things, I don't want to get it wrong anymore. I don't want to just go in and, and do the same thing the same way. So I want to repent of using prayer as a transition only or just a transition. I want to repent in ways that maybe we've inadvertently taught that prayer is the transition from one thing to another. We pray so that we can eat, we, we pray so that we can move on, we pray so that we can get a good grade or pass this test. It's this transitional or, or transactional piece. We pray sometimes and say, God, here's my prayer. I'm treating it like a vending machine, and now you can give me this in return. I don't think that's how prayer was designed. It's not transactional. And prayer is not transitional. 
Oftentimes, we've used prayer as a way to move from one thing to another, to silently transition from what we were doing to something we're going to be doing. I don't want to use prayer as just a transitional piece anymore. I don't believe that's what it was intended for. And if I'm honest, I, we've had this conversation, I've had this conversation with even, you know, Josh, as we were talking about this service in particular and saying, how do we continue to not just see prayer as a transitional thing, but rather get back to what prayer really is? Because oftentimes, if we haven't used prayer as a transactional piece or even a transitional piece, we've used it as a placeholder. Oh, this is the time we pray. This is the time that we just talk to God. It's a placeholder. And I think when we view prayer as just a placeholder, we lose the intimacy and the richness and the goodness that God wants to offer us through our intimate, deep, and, and personal relationship with him through prayer. And as we dig into today, as we dig into prayer in this series of why it matters, I think we have to have a posture of humility. Because I think that humility and prayer, they are inseparable. Because when we go to God in prayer, we have to humbly submit to him. We have to humbly submit to him. We can't see God's hand working when we're so focused on my own will, my own agenda, my own thoughts. Kevin Myers, the lead pastor of 12 Stones down in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the largest Wesleyan churches, he, he puts it this way when he was talking one time. He says, your faith is only as deep as your daily personal experience with God. Let's put that into perspective maybe. If we only strive for a devotional prayer life, 15 minutes a day, we do it in the morning, we do it at night, and we're good to go, how deep are we expecting to have that relationship be? I don't know about you, but I have many different relationships and friendships in my life. If I only spent five to 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes a day max in some of those relationships, how deep would my relationship with them be? We just got out of this rewriting love relationship type of series. If I only spent 15 minutes with my wife a day, how intimate and deep would my relationship with them be? Now, sometimes I'm sure my wife would only like 15 minutes of me. I can't blame her. But I think, truly, we have to understand that God is not after just a devotional prayer life. He's after a devoted prayer life. And that means a devoted prayer life is, is a life that is intimate and deep and rich in a relationship with him. Jesus, in his whole entire word, the word of God speaks about prayer in his whole entire lifestyle. The Old Testament, Isaiah 56, God through Isaiah is painting this picture of the Savior to come. He paints the picture. Isaiah writes down, paints the picture of the, the Savior to come. It's a prophetic declaration, prophetic declaration that outsiders and insiders in the faith, both of them, would be welcome into God's presence, would be welcome into his home, welcome into his love, into the kingdom of God through prayer. Jeremiah 2.13. 
Again, the prophet here, he writes that God is instructing him, Jeremiah, that his people, God's people have abandoned him. And it says that they have abandoned him for dry and broken cisterns and wells. Y'all, can I just, can I just say this? That even religion can be a dry and broken cistern and well. We can sometimes replace the intimate, devoted lifestyle of prayer with the things of the world, and even sometimes the false idol of religion itself. You see, it's very clear to me, it's very clear that we are called to have a devoted life of prayer. And in Jeremiah's times, and even when Jesus would would talk about this, about those who have neglected the devoted life and instead have satisfied themselves with the dry, broken cisterns and wells, the ones who were most offended by that statement were the ones who were holding too tightly and too closely and trusting too much in the dry, broken cisterns and the dried up well. And Jesus was not afraid to get his hands dirty. Matthew 21, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. The story most of us probably even know, where he walks into the temples and he flips over the tables. And he says the statement that my house, this house, will be known as a house of prayer. What's intriguing to me is this. Over and over and over again, the disciples would have done life with Jesus. They would have seen him get his hands messy. They would have seen him cause some controversy. They would have been standing right next to him. But it wasn't until I was really thinking about this message and and this story that maybe I caught a glimpse of something that I didn't understand the importance of. You see, before we read this next text that we're going to kind of hang out briefly in, I want to bring us into that story. You can imagine all of the people flooding to the city. See, this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, it would have happened every single year. And people would have flooded into the city. They would have packed up their whole entire family. They would have brought their, their whole entire, uh, you know, almost a lot of their goods. They would have pitched tents and they would have brought their family and, and, and livestock to help get them there. And, and you can almost picture the amount of people in the city. Picture livestock, but without all the, well, you know. Yes, yes, the smell. Picture all of that. And here they are and you can look out and every single day the priest would go and they'd get the water and they'd bring it to the temple's Stairs at the entrance there. And this would go on every single day. And then on the seventh day, they would pour out all the water and it would run down the stairs. And here he is. Here Jesus is. You can picture the disciples. You can see Jesus standing there, being there with the disciples. And the disciples have no idea that this is his last feast of the tabernacle that he's going to partake it with them. This is the last one. They don't know it yet, but Jesus does. They don't know that come this time next year, Jesus is not going to be here with us. And as they go through the feast, 
on this very last day, as the water is running down the stairs, you can, you can see it. You can almost hear the trickling of the water. And as they pour out jug after jug after jug of water, the water starts to flow into almost a nice stream. It's flowing down the stairs. It's trickling down now past people. And you see, here's what happens. Jesus stands up and he does something That is incredible. In the middle of the temple courts, in the middle of this whole entire thing, in the middle of the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, he stands up, and as the water is being poured out, Jesus, you can almost feel him take the, the deepest breath possible, and his voice becomes louder, and he starts to even pour out his own voice, pour out him own, his own self. And he says something so controversial, so pivotal, but yet so profound and beautiful. He gives this big invitation. Anyone who thirsts, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. He calls himself the living water. Man, he says, come to me and drink. And what's so intriguing about that is he says, anyone who thirsts, See, this, this invitation, anyone who thirsts, is a very broad invitation. It doesn't matter your racial identity, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your political status or, or where you identify. It doesn't matter your social status, economic status. It doesn't even matter how smart you might be. Jesus says, anyone who thirsts. It's this broad invitation. It's like he's taking a big, giant roller and just rolling over everybody and says, if you thirst, just come to me and drink. But yet this invitation is so narrow and it's so refined as well. And those same words, anyone who thirsts, in order to go and get a drink, you have to know that you are thirsty. Which means you have to acknowledge that you have a desire that's not being met. You have a need that's not being met. So it's this broad invitation, anyone, but yet it's this narrow invitation, who thirsts. And he, he's flipping the whole entire script to come and drink, to place your trust, to place your faith, to place your belief in me. What's so beautiful about this is that Jesus, Jesus is, is not just talking about a physical thing, but he's talking about a spiritual thing. This is what the scripture actually says, John 7, 37 through 39. This is what it reads. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. The scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. What's so intriguing about this is this part. Because when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be giving to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So Jesus is inviting people into an intimate relationship with him, knowing that the Spirit is about to be poured out upon the people. And remember, the disciples and the people in the presence here would have no idea even what Jesus really was talking about here. 
But Jesus has always been about inviting people into his presence, into a deep, intimate, personal relationship with him. This is a devoted relationship, not just a devotional relationship. And I love it. I love it that when you look at this and then you look at the text found in Matthew 21, where Jesus walks into the temples and he flips over the tables. This is what Matthew 21 says. You're not going to see it on the screen. Jesus entered the temple, verse 12, entered the temple, began to drive out all the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. See, he comes and he flips the scripts, not just the tables. Because in, instead of following along with what Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry, despite the announcement at the beginning of his ministry that God's people were supposed to be about God's will, God's presence, instead, the religious establishment was failing to bring people into the kingdom of God. What's intriguing here is this, is that, and I love how Tim Keller says this. Tim Keller writes it this way, the only one, the only person who has the right to rearrange the furniture and the owner is the owner of the house. Have you ever had that moment where you just feel God starting to shift and move things in your life? And you're like, God, I don't, I don't know if I like that arrangement currently in the living room. I keep seeming to stub my toe on where you put the couch. Well, if we are, if we are the temple... He's the one who gets to rearrange the furniture, y'all. He's the one. In this text, in Matthew 21, Jesus' overturning of the tables and overthrowing the economic system that the Jewish leaders had used was him flipping it on its head. Because what they were using it for was for a personal gain a financial gain rather than a spiritual gain. If you were to dig in the, the word that we translate den of robbers, it's this twofold rebuke. It's a twofold rebuke. And it's actually not the Aramaic of thief. Instead, this is what it means. Here's the two folds. It means number one is it's using this place as a hideaway for immoral activity. So he's, he's calling them out of using the temple, the house of God, for a hideaway, a place of immoral activity. As well as, this is insurrectionist language. This is using the temple as a nationalist or a political stronghold. Essentially, a lot of the Jewish leaders were saying, well, come and if you pay this fine, we'll help you get closer to God with that. Come and if you buy this from us, we'll help you do this. They're using this as this almost political stronghold, this political nationalist place rather than what it should be. And I think for us, simply put, that means that Jesus is overturning the ways that we have commercialized our spiritual journey. Sometimes I think the church has gotten really comfortable with using 
God has a vending machine for personal gains. And I don't think it was ever meant to be that way. You see, Jesus wants to overturn our self-centered approach to our spiritual journey and make the Father our pursuit again. And I think for a lot of us in Western Christianity, we've maybe lost sight of where we should be turning to and looking at. Jesus wants to overturn and rearrange our spiritual journey back to his heart, back to a relationship and not just some religion. He wants to move us back to a devoted life, not just a devotional life. He wants to move us back to true intimacy and not an imitated affection. Jesus is all about moving us back to where we are called to be and taking us to where he wants us to go. We talk often in the church, we want renewal, we want revival, we want awakening to happen. We want this renewal, a personal level of renewal, a renewal of our own personal love and devotion, our first love to him. And from that, when, when renewal happens in individuals, there's this collective revival that begins at a corporate level, a church level. A revival starts bubbling up where, where it, it comes where, from the church into the streets, and then out of the streets, uh, an awakening happens where a whole entire culture may shift. If we desire to have God renew, revive, and awaken us, that means we have to truly seek his face in his presence through devoted life, not just a devotional lifestyle. And that happens when we ask the question, what are we striving for? Are we striving for a devotional prayer life or a devoted prayer life? But what are we striving for? Because we can ask that question, but then there's that simple follow-up question. So what next? What next? This is where it gets fun. That's just my intro. I still got 35 minutes. I'm joking. Josh wouldn't let me preach for 35 more minutes. Um, here's what happens. I think we have to repent. And I think we have to mean it. And as I was thinking about repentance, I think sometimes we get this idea of like, well, what in the world does that even mean? Like, oh, repent, like, God, I'm so sorry, forgive me, okay, we're good. But repentance is this, is this thing that we, we, we do as we come to God. It's not something that we do and then we get to come to him. It's something that we do, it's this journey. Like, if you were in New York, and I tell you to come move to Los Angeles, I really don't need to say, leave New York and come to Los Angeles. To come to Los Angeles is to leave New York. Do you follow along so far? Like, if I haven't left New York, I can't go to Los Angeles. You get it? Right? We follow along? We can't come to the kingdom of God unless we live our sin and our gender and our brokenness behind. We understanding? Okay, I guess we have to have another one. We can't leave behind. 
We can't enter into his presence. We can't experience the fullness of God unless we leave behind my own agendas, my own brokenness, and my own guilt and shame. We have to journey together in this. A devoted lifestyle together. We can't come to God in prayer if we are still obsessed over our own will, our own thoughts, and our own agendas. Jesus is after a devoted prayer life, not just a devotional one. For so long, I had this um, idea. Early, like, college, late high school, of what this looked like to have a good prayer life. Rich Volados put, um, put the name on it that truly defined how I saw it, and I just didn't have the good name for it. He said that uh, I had this, what he would call, a Costco membership prayer life. I know, right? I thought it was pretty good. I would go to God, and I would stock up and bulk up and hoard up all the stuff I would need. And then as I would gradually need it, I would just pull from it. I didn't want to go to him daily. I just wanted to go one time on a Saturday morning at 10, 10 a.m. and get all I needed, throw it in my cart, swipe the card, go home, stock it downstairs in the basement. When I needed it, I pulled it out. And as I got low, I would just go again on the next Saturday at 10, 10 a.m., fill up my cart, swipe the card, go back home, put it in my basement until I needed it again. I had this Costco membership prayer life. God, give me, give me, give me. Right now, we're in a good place. Okay, let's coast on by. I'm running low. God, give me, give me, give me. Maybe some of us can identify with that. That we've only treated prayer as this transaction. We've viewed God as this Costco type of membership. I remember these days, late high school and early college, where I would just try so hard to put time on my calendar. If I would just try harder in my faith walk, I would just be better. If I would just try to pray harder or try to pray longer, I would just get a better faith life. And if I would just try to have more time and schedule it out and, oh, my 50 minutes is done, I I can be good now. My mentality was just try harder and you'll get better. Anybody else sick of the church saying that? Because I was. It's never been try harder, by the way. It's never been try harder. So many years I spent trying harder. So many years I tried just to do more. And I always was left with the same question, God, why is our relationship still stale? God, I saw you on Saturday, man. It's Wednesday night. Where are you? What I bought on Saturday was supposed to stay till, till Wednesday night, and it's gone now. God, I'm trying really, really hard. It'd be nice if you tried to. Woo! See, so often we had this idea of try harder, and you'll get better. And it wasn't until I did this 40-day fast with some of my friends, which was really hard, by the way, for someone who likes food. 
And we literally fasted. And in this time, I just was asking God, like, God, I'm, I'm trying, but I just want you to speak. And I wish I could say, like, on day three, God showed up and was like, in the booming Morgan Freeman, beautiful voice and speaks to me. Like, it didn't happen like that. Because if you would have spoke on day three, I probably would have stopped the fast. Night of like day 40. I started to get this sense that God was speaking and saying something. Kyle, you were focusing on trying harder when all I asked was for you to seek me. Kyle, you've been so busy trying to schedule time with me you forgot about the intimacy of our conversations and our relationship. Kyle, you were trying harder to get better, but that was never my message. For me, my whole entire life, I've had this mentality, this idea that if I just try harder, things will get better. In life, in relationships, in faith, it didn't matter what. If you just try harder, put in more work, do more, things will just get better. And I remember writing this down. The church's message today is try harder to get better, but Christ's message is and always has been eat my body, drink my blood, become a part of me. I had his message all wrong. His message to me was never try harder. His message to the disciples was never try harder. His message to his followers was never try harder. As Josh comes up and as we close, Jesus, I, I don't want to miss this, Jesus, his message was never try harder. He never looked at anybody. He never looked at somebody and said, you're just not trying hard enough. Every single instance that I can think of, Jesus' message was, just come to me. Be with me. Be a part of me. Talk with me. Listen to me. Even at the Last Supper, take my body. Drink my blood. Remember me. It was never about the performance. Because if it was about performance, I, I can probably promise you he wouldn't have chose the 12 that he chose. He wouldn't have chose a hothead. Peter. He wouldn't have chose Peter because Peter's performance was horrible. He wouldn't have chose James and John, the sons of thunder, because they had mouths that were horrible. It was never about performance. It was always about relationships. It was also always about devotion. So I'm going to do my best. Once you become aware, you become responsible. I don't want to look at prayer as just a transition. And I hope I don't look at prayer as just a transaction or just a placeholder.
And as a church, my hope is, is that we will look at prayer for what it's meant to be. Deep, personal conversation with the very one who spoke and everything was created. Deep, personal relationship with the very one who died and hung on a cross for our sins. Deep, personal relationship with the living water. That we would not settle for broken cisterns or dry wells anymore, but rather that we would go and we would quench our spiritual thirst with the only one who can. And so for some of us, maybe we've noticed this morning that this isn't our typical pattern. What we're going to do now is this, is um, we're going to just enter into a time of worship. And there may be some songs that you don't know today, and that's okay. Because during this time of worship, here's my challenge. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to sit and fall before God and say, God, I've treated prayer as this when I know you've never designed it to be. God, I've looked at you as this when I know you were never designed to be. And so during this next few moments here, I want to invite you to just personally get to the place where you just are right where you need to be with Jesus. The lights are going to go down and the band is going to come up and there's going to be a little instrumental and then we're going to go into the worship songs. And and I know for some of us, it's really uncomfortable to get out of our seats to just stand, but I want to invite you, if there's just, if you need to just come and just lay something at the very front, as an altar of prayer, as an altar where you can lay it down and just pray and say, God, take this. And when you rise up and go back to your chair after that prayer, that you would leave it at the altar, you're invited to do so. If you need to get up and you need to worship and pray and you need to walk around, maybe you're like me and have ADHD and full of energy drink this morning and you can't stand still and you need to walk around and pray and sing, you're more than welcome to. If you need to just sit still in your chair with a quiet heart before God and just listen to him, you're more than welcome to. And I truly believe that there may be people here today that God is stirring you to take a next step. For some of us, that may mean repenting of what we've made our relationship and we focus so much on religion rather than relationship. And he's calling us back into the relationship. He wants to get back together with us. And for some of us, that may mean that we need to take a public declaration. You may need to stand up before your church family, before your friends, and maybe God's leading you to get baptized. I would love to have a conversation with you and get you scheduled for baptism. Maybe for some of us, it's a recommitment or a first-time commitment. Even if you're online, drop it in the comments, send us a message, do whatever you have to do. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity.
to listen to what God is stirring in you. So I want to invite us to this moment right here, right now. To just sit before him and repent and listen to what he's speaking to us.